0: Hello and welcome back to the second part of Mary Elizabeth Braddon's The Christmas Hirelings. I hope you enjoyed part one, in which we were introduced to the main characters and the setting. The next two chapters went back into Sir John's backstory. And so in today's episode, chapters three and four, we will pick up the story where we left off in the prologue. The Christmas Hirelings by Mary Elizabeth Braddon Chapter 3 The time, afternoon, the afternoon of Christmas Eve, the place, the library at Penlyon Castle, and the only personage, Sir John Penlyon, sitting by the fire in the gathering dusk, somewhat out of temper with the world at large and with himself as the most important member in it. The morning had been troublesome, spent for the most part with his bailiff, who was full of the wants and the shortcomings of tenants. Sir John had missed his useful friend Danby, and that philosophical spirit which always made light of such thorns in the flower bed of a rich man's lot, and always succeeded in laughing him out of his bad temper. Mr. Danby had been absent for the last four days. He had gone with Sir John's check in his pocket, to fetch the Christmas hirelings, the little people who were to come to the dull old castle and make merriment for its solitary lord. The more Sir John Penline meditated upon the business, especially this afternoon, the more preposterous and vexatious it seemed to him. "'I must have been an errant fool to consent to such a piece of folly,' he said to himself. Enter Adela Haverk, flushed and excited. "'We have finished, uncle,' It is quite the prettiest tree you ever saw. How delighted the dear little things will be. Dear little things indeed. How do you know they might be odious little things, spoilt and cantankerous, or underbred and hypocritical, if they have been what a middle-class mother calls well brought up? Brought up to sit upon the edge of their chair and to be afraid of everybody? They are sure to be nice children. Mr. Danby wouldn't bring nasty ones. What does he know about children, an old bachelor? Why, Uncle, you can't have seen him in a children's party, or you'd never say that. He is a prodigious favorite with the children in all the houses he goes to. Perhaps that is one reason why the mothers are so fond of him. Hark, they ought to be here by this time. The carriage went to Victoria an hour ago to meet the coach from Lansden. They were to stay at Plymouth last night. Mr. Danby thought it would be too long a journey for the little things to do in one day. He is so considerate. He is a fool, and I am a greater fool to encourage his nonsense. The utter absurdity of bringing children from the other end of the world. Do you know where the creatures come from, Adela? I haven't the faintest notion. All Mr. Danby said was that they lived on the other side of London, and that he wanted a clear week to fetch them. You must remember, Uncle. You told him you wanted to know nothing about them. They were to come and go, and you were to hear no more of them. They were to have no claim upon you in the future. I should think not indeed claim upon me forsooth, but it would have been only civil to tell me where the brats come from and who their people are. No doubt he will tell you if you ask him. He ought to have told me of his own accord. I am not going to ask him. Adela was discreetly silent, seeing that her uncle was in what she called one of his tempers. She always respected her uncle's tempers. She went to the big bay window from which she could see a long way down the drive. It was not four o'clock, but the dimness of a wintry twilight was creeping over the landscape. The afternoon was mild and calm, by no means an old-fashioned Christmas, an afternoon that might have been October. She could hear a faint sighing of the wind and the trees near at hand, and the roaring of the waves far off. Not a stormy roar, only the rhythmical rise and swell of the great Atlantic rolling over the stony beach. Everything had been made ready for the little strangers. There were fires blazing in two large bedrooms overhead, rooms with a door of communication. In one there were still the two little white beds in which Lillian and Sybil had slept when they were children. Poor Lillian, whose bed was in the English Cemetery at Florence, under a white marble monument erected by her sorrowing husband, and whose sorrowing husband had taken to himself a second wife five years ago. Everyone knew where Lillian was lying, but no one at Penlion Castle knew where Sybil's head had found rest. All that people knew about the disobedient daughter was that her husband had died within three or four years of her marriage worn to death in some foreign mission after toiling for a year or so at the east end of London. Of his luckless widow, no one at Penlyon had heard anything, but it was surmised that her father made her an allowance. He could hardly let his only daughter starve, people said, however badly she might have treated him. Lady Lurgrave's early death had been a crushing blow to his love and to his pride. She had died childless. The rooms were ready. Adela ran upstairs to take a final survey. One of the housemaids had been told off to wait upon the little strangers, and Adela's maid was to give a hand. Neither of these young women had any objection to the extra duty. Each professed herself fond of children. "'They'll enliven the place a little, poor mites,' said Harrop, who considered Penlyon the abode of dullness, and Sarah the housemaid agreed with her. Harrop was to sleep in the larger room, and in the bed which Miss Peterson had occupied during five peaceful years. Sarah had put up her truckle bed in the inner and smaller room, where she was to keep guard over the little boy. It would be downright cruelty to let any child sleep alone in one of these ghastly rooms, said Sarah. Ghastliness. The ghastliness being doubtless a question of spaciousness in oak paneling, and ponderous old-fashioned furniture which cast monstrous shadows in the pale glimmer of the nightlight. Hark, yes, that was the roll of wheels on the gravel drive, a nearer sound than the sullen swell of the sea out yonder, grinding the pebbles in an unresting mill. Adela Haaberk flew down the hall, followed by Harrop, while Sarah, the housemaid, stopped upstairs and gave a final stir to the fires, after the want of her tribe, who are always ready to use the poker, wanted or not wanted, with a noble disregard to the coal merchant's bill. Sir John had heard the carriage stop, and the opening of the hall door, and although he pretended to go on reading his paper by the lamp placed close at his elbow, the pretense was a poor one, and anybody might have seen that he was listening with all his might. The footman had opened the hall door as the wheels drew near, and it was wide open when the carriage stopped. The red light from the hall fire streamed out upon the evening gray, and three little silvery voices were heard exclaiming, oh, what a pretty house, oh, what a big house, and then the smallest voice of the three with amazing distinctness, what an exceedingly red fire. The carriage door flew open, and two little girls, all in red from top to toe, and one little boy in gray, rolled out in a heap, or seemed to roll out like puppies out of a basket, and scrambled onto their feet, and ran up the steps. Mr. Danby, slim and jaunty as usual, following them. "'Good gracious, how tiny they are!' cried Adela, stooping down to kiss the smaller girl, a round red bundle with a round little face and large dark grey eyes shining in the firelight. The tiny thing accepted the kiss somewhat shrinkingly and looked about her. Awed by the grandeur of the hall, the large fireplace and blazing logs, the men in armor or the suits of armor standing up and pretending to be men, I don't like them, said the tiny girl, clinging to Danby, and pointing with a muffled red hand at one of these mailed warriors. They're not alive, are they, Uncle Tom? No, no, Moppet. they're as dead as doornails. Are they? I don't like dead people. Come, come, Moppet. suppose they're not people at all. No more than a rocking horse is a real live horse. We'll pull one of them down tomorrow and look inside him, and then you'll be satisfied. The larger Scarlet Mite, larger by about an inch, older by a year, was standing before the fire, gravely warming her hands, spreading them out before the blaze as much as hands so tiny could spread themselves. The boy was skipping about the hall, looking at everything, the armed warriors especially, and not at all afraid. They're soldiers, aren't they? He asked. Yes, laddie. I should like to be dressed like that and go into a battle and kill lots of people, I couldn't be killed myself, could I, if I had that stuff all over me? Perhaps not, Laddie, but I don't think it would answer. You'd be an anachronism. I wouldn't mind being anachronism if it saved me from being killed, said Laddie. Come, little ones, come and be presented to your host, said Mr. Danby, as the footmen opened the library door, and they all poured in. Danby, Adela, and the children, the smallest running in first, her sister and the boy following, considerably in advance of the grown ups. Moppet ran right into the middle of the room as fast as her little red legs could carry her. Then, seeing Sir John sitting where the bright lamplight shone full upon his pale, elderly face, with its strongly marked features, black eyebrows, and silvery gray hair, she stopped suddenly, as if she had beheld a gorgon and began to back slowly till she brought herself up against the silken skirt of Adela Hauberk's gown. And in that soft drapery she in a manner absorbed herself till there was nothing to be seen of the little neatly rounded figure except the tip of a bright red cap and the toes of two bright red gaiters. The elder mite had advanced less boldly, and had not to beat so ignominiously every retreat. She was near enough to Mr. Danby to clutch his hand, and holding that, she was hardly at all frightened. The boy, older, bolder, and less sensitive than either of the girls, went skipping round the library as he had skipped about the hall, looking at things and apparently unconscious of Sir John Penlyon's existence. "'How do you do, Danby?' said Sir John, holding out his hand as his old friend advanced to the fire, the little red girl hanging on to his left hand while he gave his right to his host. "'Upon my word, I began to think you were never coming back. You've been an unconscionable time. One would suppose you had to fetch the children from the world's end.' "'I had to bring them to the world's end,' You might say. Bowcastle is something more than a day's journey from London in the depth of winter.' And are these the children? Good heavens, Danby! What could you be thinking about to bring us such morsels of humanity? We wanted children, said Danby, not hobbledehoys. Hobbledehoys? No, but there is reason in everything. You couldn't suppose I wanted infants like these. Look at that little scrap hidden in Adela's frock. It's positively dreadful to contemplate. They will be getting under my feet. I shall be treading upon them and hurting them seriously. No, you won't, Jack. I'll answer for that. Why not, pray? Because of their individuality. They are small, but they are people. When Moppet comes into her room, everybody knows she is there. She is a little scared now, but she will be as bold as brass in a quarter of an hour. Sir John Penlyon put on his spectacles and looked at the little hirelings more critically. Their youth and diminutive size had been a shock to him. He had expected bouncing children with rosy faces, long auburn hair, and a good deal of well-developed legs showing below a short frock. These, measured against his expectations, were positively microscopic. Their cheeks were pale rather than rosy. Their hair was neither auburn nor long. It was dark hair and it was cropped close to the neat little heads, showing every bump in the broad, clever-looking foreheads. Sir John's disapproving eyes showed him that the children were more intelligent than the common run of children, but for the moment he was not disposed to accept intelligence instead of size. They are preposterously small, he said. Not at all the kind of thing I expected. They will get lost under chairs or buried alive in waste-paper baskets. I wash my hands of them. Take them away, Adela. Let them be fed and put to bed then turning to Mr. Danby as if to dismiss the subject. "'Anything stirring in London when you were there, Tom?' Before Danby could answer, Moppet emerged from her shelter, advanced deliberately, and planted herself in front of Sir John Penlion, looking him straight in the face. "'I'm sorry you don't like us, Mr. Old Gentleman,' she said. Every syllable came out with clear precision from those infantine lips. Moppet's strong point was her power of speech— Firm, decisive, correct as to intonation came every sentence from the lips from this small personage. Ponderous, polysyllables were no trouble to mop it. There was only an occasional consonant that baffled her. "'Who says I don't like you?' said Sir John, taken aback and lifting the animated bundle of red cloth onto his knee. He found there was something very substantial inside the woolly cloak and gaiters—a pair of round, plump arms and sturdy little legs a compact little figure which perched firmly on his knee. "'You said so,' retorted Moppet, with her large gray eyes very wide open and looking full into his. "'You don't like us because we are so very small. Everybody says we are small, but everybody doesn't mind. Why do you mind?' "'I didn't say anything about not liking you, little one. I was only afraid you were too small to go out visiting.' I went out to tea when I was two, and nobody said I was too small. I have real tea at parties, not milk and water. And I have been out to tea often and often, haven't I, Lassie? Not so many times as I have, replied the elder red thing with dignity. She was standing in front of the wide old fireplace, warming her hands, and she was to Sir John's eye somewhat suggestive of a robin redbreast that had fluttered in and lighted there. "'Of course not, because you're older,' said Moppet, disgusted at the superfluous self-assertion on her sister's part. "'I am always good at parties,' ain't I, Uncle Tom, turning an appealing face to Mr. Danby. "'So these Lilyputians are your nieces, Danby?' exclaimed Sir John. "'Well, no, they are not exactly nieces, though they are very near and dear. "'I am only a jury, Uncle.' A jury uncle, cried Moppet, throwing her head back and laughing at the unknown word. A jury uncle, echoed the other two, and the three laughed prodigiously, not because they attached any meaning to the word, but only because they didn't know what it meant. That was where the joke lay. You know that in Cornwall and in Sicily, all the elderly men are uncles, and all the old women, aunts. Everybody's uncles and aunts, concluded Mr. Danby. Moppet still occupied Sir John's knee. She felt somehow that it was a post of honor, and she had no inclination to surrender it. Her tiny fingers had possessed themselves of his watch chain. "'Please show me your watch,' she said. Sir John drew out a big hunter. Moppet approached her little rosy mouth to the hinge and blew violently. "'Why don't it open like Uncle Tom's watch does when I blow?' she asked. "'Is it broken?' "Hmm, "'Blow again, and we'll see about that,' said Sir John, understanding the maneuver." The big, bright case flew open as Moppet blew. Take care it doesn't bite your nose off. How big and bright it is, much bigger and brighter than Uncle Tom's! Uncle Tom's is a lady's watch, and Uncle Tom is a lady's man, said Sir John, and the triple peal of childish laughter which greeted this remark made him fancy himself a wit. Small as they were, these children were easily amused, and that was a point in their favor, he thought. "'Tea is ready in the breakfast room,' said Adela. "'Tea in the breakfast room? Oh, how funny!' And again they all laughed. At any rate, they were not doleful children. No long faces, no homesick airs, no bilious headaches, so far. "'I dare say they will all start measles or whooping cough before we have done with them,' thought Sir John, determined not to be hopeful. "'Oh, are we to come to tea, are we?' he said cheerily and he actually carried Mopin all the way to the breakfast room, almost at the other end of the rambling old house, and planted her in a chair by his side at the tea table. She nestled up close beside him. "'You... you like us now, don't you?' she asked. "'I like you.' "'And you'll like her?' pointing to her sister with a small distinct finger. "'And him?' pointing to her brother. "'Tomorrow morning. You'll know us all tomorrow morning.' Tomorrow will be Christmas, said Laddie, as if giving a piece of useful information to the company in general. Christmas, cried Danby, so it will. I mustn't forget to hang up my stocking. This provoked a burst of mirth. Uncle Tom's stocking. Uncle Tom hoping to get anything from Santa Claus. You need not laugh, said Mr. Danby. Seriously? I mean to hang up one of my big Inverness stockings. It will hold a lot. What do you expect to get? asked Laddie, intensely amused. Toys? No, chocolates, butterscotch, hardbake, Ella Compayne. Oh, what's Ella Compayne? The name of this old fashioned sweetmeat was received with derision. Why, what an old sweet tooth you must be! exclaimed Moppet. But I don't believe you a bit. I shall come in the middle of the night to see if your stocking is there. "'You won't find my room. You'll go into the wrong room, most likely, and find one of the three bears.' Moppet laughed at the notion of those familiar beasts. "'There never were three bears that lived in a house and had beds and chairs and knives and forks and things,' she said. I used to believe it once when I was very little, but now I know it isn't true.' She looked round the table with a solemn air, with her lips pursed up, challenging contradiction. Her quaint little face in which the forehead somewhat overbalanced the tiny features below it, was all aglow with mind. One could not imagine more mind in any living creature than was compressed within this quaint scrape of humanity. Sir John watched her curiously. He had no experience of children of that early age. His own daughters had been some years older before he began to notice them. He could but wonder at this quick and eager brain animating so infinitesimal a body. Moppet looked round the table, and what a table it was! She had never seen anything like it. Cornwall, like Scotland, has a prodigious reputation for breakfasts. But Cornwall, on occasion, can almost rival Yorkshire in the matter of tea. Laddie and Lassie had set to work already, one on each side of Miss Hauberk, who was engaged with urn and teapot. Moppet was less intent upon food and had more time to wonder and scrutinize her big mind was hungrier than her little body. "'Oh, what a lot of candles!' she cried. "'You must be very rich, Mr. Old Gentleman!' Eight tall candles and two heavy old silver candelabra lighted the large round table, and on the dazzling white cloth was spread such a feast as little children love. Cakes of many kinds, jams and marmalade, buns, muffins and crisp biscuits fresh from the oven, scones both white and brown, the pale yellow clotted cream in the preparation of which Cornwall pretends to surpass her sister Devon, as in her cider and smoked pig. It is only natural that Cornwall, in her stately seclusion at the end of western England, should look down upon Devonshire as sophisticated and almost cockney. Cornwall is to Devon as the real Scottish Highlands are to the Trossachs. Besides the cakes and jams in cream bowl, There were flowers, Christmas roses, and real roses, red and yellow, such flowers as only grow in rich men's greenhouses, and there was a big silver urn in which Laddie and Lassie could see their faces, red and broad and shining, as they squeezed themselves each against one of Adela's elbows. "'Oh, Uncle Tom!' exclaimed Lassie, in a rapturous tone. "'We shall never die here!' "'Not for want of food, certainly, Lassie!' The children had eaten nothing since a very early dinner in Plymouth, and on being pressed to eat by Miss Hauberg and Mr. Danby, showed themselves frankly greedy. Sir John did nothing but look on and wonder at them. They showed him a new phase of humanity. Did life begin so soon? Was the mind so fully awakened while the body was still so tiny? How old are you, Mistress Moppet? he asked when Moppet had finished her first slice of saffron cake four and a quarter. Not five years old, she had lived in the world less than five years. She talked of what she had thought and believed when she was little, and she seemed to know as much about life as he did at sixty-five. You are a wonderful little woman, not to be afraid of going out visiting without your nurse? Nurse? echoed Moppet, staring at him with her big gray eyes. What's a nurse? She doesn't know, explained Laddie. We never had a nurse. It's a woman like Julie that has to take care of her, Moppet," he explained condescendingly. "'A bone, we call her, but we've never had a bone,' he added with a superior air. "'Indeed!' exclaimed Sir John. Then pray who has taken care of you, put you to bed at night, and washed and dressed you of a morning, taken you out for walks, or wheeled you in a perambulator? Mother!' cried the boy. Mother does all that. Except for me. I dress myself. I take my own bath. Mother says, I'm growing quite indie, indie, pendant, screamed Moppet across the table. What a silly boy you are. You always forget the names of things. Moppet was getting excited. The small cheeks were flushed and the big eyes were getting bigger, and Moppet was inclined to gesticulate a good deal when she talked and to pat the tablecloth with two little hands to give point to her speech. Moppet, said Mr. Danby, the hotcakes are getting into your head. I propose an adjournment to Bedfordshire. No, 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 Uncle Tom. We ain't to go yet, is we? pleaded the child, snuggling close up to Sir John's waistcoat, with the settled conviction that he was the higher authority. The lapse in grammar was the momentary result of excitement, in a general way Moppet's tenses and persons were as correct as if she had been twenty. I think you ought to be tired after your long journey, said the baronet, But it wasn't a long journey. We had dinner first, and in the morning we walked on the hoe. Isn't that a funny name for a place? And we saw the sea when Uncle Tom told us of the... Spanish Arcadia, interrupted Laddie, who felt it was his turn now, and how Drake and the other captains were playing bowls on the hoe just where we were standing that very minute when the news of Spanish ships came and they went off to meet them, and there was a storm and there was no fighting wanted, for the storm smashed all the ships, and they went back to King Philip without any masts, and Queen Elizabeth went on horseback to Tilbury, and that was the end of the Arcadia. Hmm, for a historical synopsis, I don't call that bad, said Mr. Danby. Nevertheless, I recommend Bedfordshire if our little friends have finished their tea. Oh, I have, said Lassie with a contented yawn. Moppet did not want to go to bed. She had eaten less than the other two, but she had talked more, and had slapped the table and had made faces, while Lassie and Laddie had been models of good manners. "'I wish you wouldn't call it Bedfordshire,' she said, shaking her head vindictively at Mr. Danby. "'It makes it worse to go to bed when people make jokes about it!' Mr. Danby came round to where she sat, and took her up in his arms as if she had been a big doll instead of a small child. "'Say goodnight to Sir John,' he said. Moppet stooped her face down to the baronets and pursed her red lips in the prettiest little kiss, which was returned quite heartily. "'Take her away, Danby, she is much too excited, and she is the funniest little thing I ever saw. Good night, my dears,' he said to the others as he rose and walked towards the door. "'I hope you will spend a happy Christmas at place. Adela, Be sure the little things are comfortable and that Nurse Danby's instructions are obeyed. The children laughed at this rude mention of Mr. Danby and went off to bed repeating the phrase, Nurse Danby, with much chuckling and giggling. Chapter Four Well, Jack, said Danby when Miss Hawberg had left the dining room and he and Sir John were alone with their chairs drawn up to the hearth, their cigarettes lighted, and a bottle of Chateau Lafitte on the table between them. Have you forgiven the children for being so much smaller than you expected? I could forgive that youngest mite anything, smashing the Portland vase if I owned it. She is what your friends over yonder, with a nod westward, would call an amusing little cuss. She is a little lump of love, answered Danby. One has to know that child well to know how much there is in her. You are very weak about her, evidently. Very fond of all three, no doubt? Yes, I am fond of them all. Lassie is going to grow up a beauty. I shall be very proud of her twelve years hence, if I live so long. You say they are not actually your nephew and nieces? Not actually. But they are pretty nearly related to you, I take it? They are as near to my heart as they can be. You are not very explicit. Why, no, Jack. That isn't in the bond. It was agreed that the children were to come and go and you were to know nothing about them. Except that they were decently brought up and not likely to make themselves obnoxious. They were to have no claim upon you. This visit was not to be the thin end of the wedge. You need not echo me, Danby. I dare say I was rather cantankerous the other day. No, no, Jack. You were open-handed and liberal as you always are. But naturally you didn't want, by a casual kindness, to establish a claim or to give anybody's poor relations the right to bother you. We'll stick to the original notion, my dear friend. These children are hired to amuse you, and to give just the touch of homely mirthfulness that suits their season. They will enjoy all the good things your hospitality provides, and their frank happiness will enliven this solitary old house. And on the morning after Twelfth Night, they will wish you goodbye and will be seen no more at Penlion Place. (sighs) <sighs> "'Manage it your own way,' said Sir John with a faint sigh. He was thinking of his daughter Lillian, his elder daughter, who had never disobeyed him, whose marriage had gratified his pride as a father. If she had lived to be a mother, how happy he would have been to see the third generation growing up about him, to have welcomed sturdy grandsons and blooming granddaughters to the house of his forefathers, to have seen the line of the pen lions carried out towards the dim future.' With the promise of new honors and increasing wealth the bell rang at half past eight for morning prayers a big bell in a in the copula over the hall door sir john was in his armchair near the hearth with the large crimson bound prayer book open on the table in front of him waiting for the assembling of the household the bell was still ringing when a scampering of little feet was heard in the hall the door was opened rather violently and Laddie and the two little girls came rushing in, their eyes sparkling, the cheeks fresh and cold from the morning air. Moppet ran straight to Sir John and lifted up her rosebud mouth for a kiss, and was immediately taken upon his knee. It seemed the only possible thing to do with such a small creature, so round, so caressing, so bright and fresh with sweet morning breezes and morning sunshine. What a very nice garden yours is! said Moppet, approvingly. You have seen the garden already. What an early bird you are. Yes, but I didn't catch any worms. I don't like worms. They're very ugly, said Moppet, shaking her head. I'm not afraid of them now, not even when they're ever so big, but I do not like them. She slapped her open palm upon Sir John's coat sleeve to give emphasis to this final statement. Such a tiny, tiny hand but with so much character in all its movements. Laddie and Lassie, meanwhile, were walking slowly around the breakfast table, looking at the good things upon it. The big Cornish ham and savory pie and cold pheasants were on the sideboard, but the large round table was amply furnished with covered silver dishes in which the children admired themselves, and crystal jars of jam and bowls of clotted cream as at last night's tea. Laddie came to a full stop, gazing with wide-open eyes, and gave a long sigh of content. "'Poor mother,' he said, almost in tears. "'What's the matter with mother?' asked Moppet from her perch on Sir John's knee. "'She has never had a breakfast like this. "'She has what she likes. Mother isn't greedy like you. "'Cake doesn't make her happy, nor even jam,' said Moppet with a philosophical air. "'She has an egg every morning.' My fowl lays it for her sometimes. "'So you keep fowls, Moppet?' asked Sir John, curiously interested in every detail of these small lives. "'I keep a fowl, a hen. Cocks are never so much prettier, but they are fierce and they won't lay eggs. I have got a hen, and she has got one, and he has got one,' said Moppet, pointing to the brother and sister, and they all lay eggs for mother's breakfast, except when they won't. "'Hush, my pet.' "'I'm going to read prayers.' "'Are you?' said Moppet, looking at him with wondering eyes. "'Why don't you say your prayers directly you're dressed like we do?' "'These are family prayers for everybody.' "'Oh,' said Moppet, resignedly, with a very long face. "'Like church, I suppose.' Adela Hauberk and Mr. Danby came in one by one during this conversation, and Adela now took Moppet, as it were, into custody." While Danby looked after the other two, the three children were seated solemnly with their little hands quietly folded, but their eyes roaming about the room when the servants came filing in and took their places near the door. The butler, portly and pompous. The valet, tall and slim, languidly elegant. The cook, colossal. The maids, fresh-colored and prim, in cotton frocks and smart white caps. And Miss Hauberk's woman, bringing up the rear and a neat black gown and a something of lace and ribbon, which was as little like a cap as she could make it. Moppet, with her mouth wide open, counted these good people in a loud whisper, and then, just as Sir John opened his book and began the preliminary scriptures, turned to Miss Hauberk in an irresistible surprise and exclaimed aloud, Twelve servants! Mother has only one! She looked very sorry the next instant, When she heard her little clear voice clash against Sir John's deep tones, until the very end of the family prayers, she knelt or sat as mute as a statue. The prayers were not too long for anyone's patience. The servants filed out of the room as quietly as they had entered, Miss Haberks Abigail departing with an indolent grace, and with the door held open for her by an admiring footman. Then came a delicious odor of coffee, and then the business of breakfast began in earnest, and the children who had been up at the first glimpse of day, eager to find the toys in their stockings, mother's little gifts among them, and who had been dressed and running about since half past seven, were quite ready for the meal. Mr. Danby looked after them, and took care that they had only the things that were good for them, and those composed a somewhat Spartan bill affair. The butler, who was on duty at the sideboard, carving, approached Laddie as solemnly as if he were a grown-up person, and offered him a plate of pheasant and ham. Laddie looked appealingly at Uncle Tom. Not to be thought of, Laddie. You are going to have a dinner fit for a Lord Mayor of London, and you must save yourself for that. Bread and butter and an egg for breakfast, and nothing more. Moppet, who was breakfasting on a basin of bread and milk, shook her head at her brother across the wide round table. You know, Laddie, we never have meat for breakfast, she said. And we don't always have it for dinner. Sometimes we have rice pudding, and sometimes we have batter pudding," she explained to the company in general. And then we don't want meat, you know. It's better for us, and it's cheaper for Mother." She was much at home in the dining room at Penlyon Place, as if she had been in her own nursery. She had dragged a chair close to Sir John's elbow, and had placed herself at his side unbidden. Moppet had a preference for the ruder sex, perhaps resulting from her experience of her good friend Danby, who indulged her more than anybody else in her small world. She admired Adela and she liked Adela's frock and the way her hair was done, but she wanted to sit next to the nice old gentleman with the black eyebrows and silver-grey hair who had taken her on his knee and talked to her in his big, deep voice. The church was close to the gates of Penlion Place, and they all walked there together on this fine Christmas morning. It was what people call a green Christmas, the air soft and warm, the sky blue, and the sun shining on the leafless branches of oak and beech and on the green underwood. There ought to be snow at Christmas, said Lassie. It isn't like Christmas without snowballing. The children behaved so discreetly in church that it was clear that they were good little church people and that the service was familiar to them, though only Laddie made any pretense at reading his prayer book, and he always read in the wrong place. Never a word spoke Moppet all through the long rustic service, though her eyes and her sensitive lips were eloquent of many emotions. Wonder at the monuments on the wall in front of her, the knightly gentleman kneeling face to face with his stately lady, and a diminishing line of six kneeling boys behind them, and a diminishing line of six kneeling girls behind her. "'Had they really six apiece?' Moppet asked Sir John, as she trotted homeward by his side, her tiny hand held firmly in his strong fingers. Six what? Who?' "'Had the gentleman with the frill round his neck six little boys, and had the lady with the frill round her neck six little girls?' "'Yes, Moppet, it's quite true. Only they shared them.' "'Then why are the boys all on one side?' I suppose it's a more orderly arrangement. Were they all dead, down to the very littlest boy when that thing was made? I hope not, for it would give me a poor opinion of Cornwall as a health resort 250 years ago. Was it as long ago as that when there were those little boys? Asked Muppet. Longer, nearly 300 years. Three hundred, what a pity. I should like to have six little boys like those to play with. What would you do with them? Lots of things. We could play at battles, and one can't make a battle with three. It isn't like it. And it isn't a fair fight either, Moppet. Two to one. No, but Laddie thumps very hard. We have to push him down and sit upon him. And when he can't get up, we've won, exclaimed Moppet with a triumphant air. Lassie had been walking ahead with Adela, but she came running back and placed herself on Sir John's other side, pushing a very small hand, but not so tiny as Moppet's into his. "'I hope you like me a little bit, too,' she said with dignity. "'Of course I do, Lassie. I think you are a very nice little girl.' "'But you don't like me as well as you do her,' pointing to Moppet. "'Perhaps I know her best. She is such a forward young lady, and she and I are quite old friends.' "'Not really older than me and you,' said Lassie. "'Is it naughty to be forward?' Moppet asked gravely, having considered the phrase. Not at four years old. You won't be able to jump upon an elderly gentleman's knee and put your arms around his neck when you are four and twenty. I shall be too big, and I shouldn't want to unless I liked him as much as I like you. Little girls sit on their father's knees, don't they? Sometimes. I mean good little girls. And that isn't being forward, is it? No, Moppet, no. Fathers are made to be sat upon. I wish you would be my father. Why, Moppet? Because I never had one. Never. Never. It's curious, isn't it? Other little girls say it's curious when I tell them about it. Mother's a, stopping with a puzzled look, the kind of person who has a dead husband. A widow? Suggested Sir John, startled at the turn of speech. Yes, a widow. And I was born after he was dead. It's so long ago that I don't remember. And Mother was very sorry then, awfully sorry. And she was so ill and so sorry that she didn't care about me. She didn't even know I was there. It was months and months before she knew anything about me. But when she began to know, she liked me very much. And that's why I'm her favorite child, exclaimed Moppet. You mustn't talk about favorites. A mother loves all her children alike. (laughs) That isn't true, said Moppet but you're not a mother and you don't know, so you didn't mean to tell a story. Sir John accepted this rebuke meekly, and as they had now arrived at the hall door, he informed his young friend that he had some letters to write and must part company with her for an hour or two. The little woman in red looked up at him with a sorrowful face. She was an adhesive young person, and she had taken a fancy to her host. Mayn't I come with you? she asked plaintively. I'll be very quiet. I sit with Mother when she writes her letters, and sometimes she lets me wipe the pen. She has such a dear little pen holder, like a tortoise-shell cat, only it's not alive." Sir John was polite but firm. He was charmed with Moppet, but he preferred to write his letters without her company. "'We shall meet at dinner,' he said, stooping very low to kiss the atom of a hand. "'And I shall sit next to you?' asked Moppet. "'On my right hand, as the guest of the evening.' Okay, that was chapters 3 and 4 of The Christmas Hirelings. I hope you're enjoying the story as much as I am. If you can get through those first two chapters, this story really just starts taking off. I love the three children, Laddie, Lassie, and Moppet. Uh, But Moppet especially, I don't know, I can't read that without just falling in love with with that little character. She's such a sweetheart. Uh, and in some ways reminds me of my kids when they were little, especially the way they really liked to talk and would use words and expressions they had heard but may not fully understand or they would read them in a book but never say it out loud and then you know didn't didn't know what it meant. I'm reminded of just how different they did Christmas back then. Uh, I believe the story came out in 1893. But as I've said, it's it's very, very Victorian. As you'll see as the story continues to unfold. It has everything you come to expect in a Victorian story. Stay tuned for that. But I, I love the way they, they burst in into the room on, on Christmas morning and they already had their stockings in their rooms. They were just excited about the day. It was a very simple day they spent at church, they spent with each other. It sounds really Really sweet, really wonderful way to spend Christmas Day. And I I love that they were teasing Danby, or or that even uh, Sir John is already changed. He's already tapping into emotions that he has squashed away. As the story unfolds, we, we see that his daughters both have had some tragedies. And one of them is dead, and the other, they have no idea where she's at. Like Scrooge, Sir John is hurting, but in some ways Sir John is different because the pain that's been brought into his life was not because of his love for money necessarily. Well, I mean, I suppose you could make an argument about that, that he wanted his daughters to marry the proper people and and to, you know, marry for money for practical reasons, all that. I, I guess I could see that. I love just how immediately his world is is changed. His, his his emotions come out as almost immediately when he meets these children. And especially Moppet. So just a really wonderful, cozy story. I hope you're enjoying it. Stay tuned for next Friday. We will have chapters uh, 5 and 6. And then the following Friday will be the conclusion, chapter 7. Now chapter 7 is a longer chapter. And so it'll be about an hour long episode. Thank you for joining me here on the podcast. And so I will see you next time. But in the meantime, be kind to each other and do good. And remember that fathers are for sitting upon. Have a very Merry Christmas.